Well, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing this morning? <laughs> this is clearly the crew that's going to stay up for the ball drop tonight, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, as the kids are going, making their way off to their classes, I want to invite you to open up God's Word to John 8 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in your hands, please raise your hand. We would love to get you a copy of God's Word. Ushers are walking down the aisles right now. And if you don't own a Bible, um, please accept this as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, happy New Year's Eve today, Harvest, last day of 2023. And you know what I'm most excited about in 2024? You know what it is? You know what it is? It's an election year. How many people are excited? Do you know pastors all around America question everything in life every four years? I'm gearing up right now as a pastor with, uh, emotionally, spiritually, mentally to all of the conversations that will be had about the church needs to preach more on this, the church needs to endorse this person, the church needs to stand for this topic, that topic, these things, those things, this party, that party. And I'm telling you, I'm so excited to navigate that in this next year with all of you. <laughs> and I can already see in some of your faces, you're like, how can he not care about our country? That couldn't be farther from the truth. I care very deeply about our country. So do all of our pastors. We care very deeply about our country. And all of us, with biblical conviction, use the rights that have been given to us to vote based on those biblical convictions. And so uh, as a church, though, we have to recognize that uh, the leadership here and us as pastors, we don't want to be any more political than Jesus is. And so when we gather together as a church body, we gather together to be biblical, not political, knowing that Every now and again, when we open up God's word, it will address some of those hot button topics, won't it? And we are going to speak the truth on those hot button topics as God's word allows us to, but we're not going to put the cart before the horse this year in 2024. Can we just commit to that? Because that's not what the church is meant to be. And also, this isn't a new struggle. Did you know Jesus had that same political expectation put on him in his ministry? People put these pressures on Jesus. You need to be a political revolutionary in your time. We have this oppressive Roman government over us. And in fact, that's the reason why the Pharisees and the scribes missed who he was. They didn't accept him as the Messiah because this Messiah, Jesus, the, the guy who claimed to be Messiah, didn't overthrow the Roman government. This was a pressure put on Jesus. And they didn't realize that's not the reason reason why Jesus came. And so we just spent all last month talking about the fact that Jesus came, the light of the world, entering into our darkness, entering into uh, our mess as the light of the world. But now today as we jump into John 8, we're going to talk about the reason why he came, the reason why Jesus came. So we're going to jump back into a series going through the book of John that we started a while back, and we pick up again today in John 8. So if you're there, say I'm there. All right, John 8. I'm going to get through the whole story, and then we're going to draw some points out of this story, starting with verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and then it said early in the morning, right after that, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So I want to give some quick context here. 
A couple weeks ago, Dave was talking about the events that happened on either side of this passage that we see here. And even though, we'll talk about this in a second, uh, scholars uh, don't necessarily believe that this passage, where we have it, is chronological to the story. But what happens before and after this passage helps give some context to the situation that we're going to read about Uh, Before this, Jesus, if you remember in John 7, is standing um, in the temple during the great day of the Feast of Booths. It was the great Hoshana Day. One of the reasons why I remember that really well is I preached on this on Palm Sunday, if you remember, the great day of Hoshana, where uh, the, the high priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam and everyone would follow him back up to the temple. And in that moment, he would take the living water from the Pool of Siloam and he would pour it out as a pouring offering to the Lord as representation, signifying, symbolizing that God is our salvation, God is our provision. And in that very moment, a very sacred moment, it would have been as quiet, you could hear a pin drop, Jesus shouts. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and out of him will flow rivers of living water. You remember that story? So Jesus declares himself living water. Jesus declares himself their salvation, their provision in that moment. And immediately following the passage that we're going to be in today, uh, Pastor Dave spoke on this as well. Jesus makes that famous declaration, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, needless to say, both of those declarations, light of the world, living water, those are things that the Pharisees would probably not feel good about. They're like, whoa, this guy is verging on blasphemy. This guy is stirring the pot a little bit. This guy is making our lives a little bit miserable. In fact, it did say right after Jesus saying that he, uh, uh, that he is the living water, it says there was a great disturbance and division among the people after Uh, what Jesus said. And so this division that was being stirred up, the Pharisees and the scribes are starting to get a little worked up and they realize they have a predicament on their hands. What are we going to do with this Jesus guy? He is question, he's making the people question our authority, our uh, spot as leaders over this people. And in all of this, Jesus even knew, it says in scripture, that the scribes and the Pharisees were obviously opposed to Jesus, but even seeking to kill him. And I don't know if you're like me, if you know that there's a group of people uh, that are seeking to kill you, you probably would avoid the place where they tend to congregate, right? You wouldn't just walk right back into it. But what, is, what happens? In verse 2, it says, early in the morning... It says, he came again to the temple. He walks right back in there. But what, I don't want to just blast over verse one. What did he do before he walked back into the fire? He went to the Mount of Olives. What does Jesus do at the Mount of Olives? We see this in the Gospels a handful of times. He prays. Jesus steals away to a quiet place to pray before going in back into the fire, going back into the trial, going back into the opposition. I can tell you, we should really use that as a model in our lives. If Jesus needed prayer, if Jesus needed that quiet time, that time with the Lord, uh, how much more do we need it? As we're facing opposition at work, as we're facing difficult circumstances, difficult diagnoses in our lives, different things that we face day in and day out, how much more do we need prayer and time with the Lord? If Jesus needed it, we for sure need this. So it says, early in the morning he came out again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. How awesome is that? How many people in the room would love an early morning Bible study with Jesus every day? Wouldn't you love that? That was a trick question. You know why? Just wake up early and read the Bible. 
Jesus is the word of God made flesh, dwelt among us. We behold the glory of God full of grace and truth right here. You can have an early morning Bible study with Jesus every morning. Let's continue on. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the lo- now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But then when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. What a powerful story. In this text, we have an incredible opportunity to see the reason why Jesus came to us. But before we get to that, how many of you in your Bibles have this whole story kind of in double brackets with kind of a little disclaimer? Do you have that in there? I should probably mention that. There's a a note probably in your Bible that says uh, that this is not included in the earliest manuscripts of Uh, of the Gospel of John. And that's because this story was missing from the Greek manuscripts uh, before the fifth century. And thus it would have been added to John's Gospel by a scribe uh, later that would have been based on the oral tradition of Jesus's life and ministry. In later manuscripts, when it is found, oftentimes it's kind of moved around in different places. Sometimes it's found in the Gospel of Luke in some of the later manuscripts. Sometimes it's found in a different place in John. But interestingly enough, in every case, wherever it's found in Luke or in John, it's always exactly the same. All of the elements of the story are exactly the same. And now there's a lot of evidence out there as you research these things on, you know, what we would call the disputed texts of Scripture. Is it supposed to be in there? Is it not supposed to be in there? Um, What's amazing is the more you research it, the more you have confidence in what you hold here is God's word. And one thing that I researched even in this is that Papias, one of the first century church fathers who would have been a contemporary to the the apostle John, would have even known uh, John the apostle, um, references this story as an actual event that happened in Jesus's ministry. And uh, so many things could be said about this and Athanasius canon and the canonization process of, of the, the Bible that we have in our hands. And I just want to use this as a shameless plug for the discipleship ministry because we do a discipleship class called the Storyline class that we talk all about this. And we go into the Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea, all of what, how, we get, how we have the Bible today and how we can have confidence knowing that the New Testament is the one thing in the world that, the, that scholars um, secular scholars try to scrutinize and try to disprove day in and day out when we have so much more uh, early uh, manuscripts, 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that don't differ in any way except for some minor little grammatical errors, but all of them consistent to what we believe in Orthodox Christianity and the gospel and who Jesus is. No, nothing is different from that. But in any case, What we have here is God's word, and we can have confidence. And one of the reasons why I want to focus in on this story today is for three reasons. Because God's word is time-tested over the last 2,000 years, and this story, three reasons, it's a phenomenal picture of the logic of the gospel. 
we'll see that in just a moment, how the gospel just is bleeding in this story. It shines so brightly through this story. Number two, it doesn't present any new or different doctrine. In other words, if this passage was taken out or added, it doesn't change what we believe about Christianity or the tenets of the faith or the majors, the non-negotiables of Christianity. Nothing changes there. And number three, it's parallel to the way that Jesus treats social outcasts. We have that accounted for in other gospels as well, and it's a good reminder in the book of John how Jesus treats the lowly, how he gets down to their level, and it should be great encouragement to us, and it points exactly to the reason why Jesus came. And that's our first point today. Jesus came to break the comfortable and to comfort the broken. When you look in this story, there's really only two camps of people. There's the comfortable, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were kind of in this level of comfort, this elevated lifestyle of stature and um, status. And then there was the broken, the woman um, who was thrown into the middle of everything. Jesus came to break the comfortable. He came to comfort the broken. He was a mover and a shaker. There's no doubt in his life and ministry that his effect on people around him is that he would humble the proud and give grace to the humble. And that's the reality that meets us face to face right now as we are confronted with the word of God. Have you ever had that experience in life as you were reading scripture, or maybe sitting in a worship service or sitting underneath a sermon, um, listening to a sermon where it was almost as if Jesus or God himself just punched you in the teeth. Have you ever had that? He just broke you. It was probably 16 years ago or so, I think this coming spring, when um, I found myself standing in the Sears Center in Chicago, and the Passion Tour, or the Passion Conference was kind of doing a, a, a U.S. tour, and they were in Chicago. And so I was standing there, and we were in the middle of worship. And at the time, I was a Moody student. I had uh, got accepted to Moody. I was going through some classes. I had just recently uh, signed on to a part-time position at a church that I really loved. And so I was feeling really good about myself, feeling really comfortable. I kind of have everything going in line with the direction that I wanted my life and career to go. And, and um, here I'm standing there. I'm at this conference like, everything is awesome, and we get to this song. It was an older hymn that had a fresh coat of paint on it, Jesus Paid It All. Many of you know that song, and I got to that lyric, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And then there's a bridge that they added that song, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. And I don't know what it was, but God just kicked me in the mouth that day. I was standing there, next thing I know, I'm just weeping Lost, lost strength in my knees and I just fell to the ground with my head on the chair in front of me, just weeping. It was almost as if all of my sin just congealed and consolidated right before my mind's eye and the fact that Jesus chose to die for that. What's interesting is as much as it hurts to be broken by Jesus, that very same breaking moment is met by the comfort of Jesus in the truth of the cross. It's like the doctor who has to set a broken leg or relocate a dislocated shoulder. The breaking process is necessary for the healing 
to occur. And so let's look in the text and find ourselves in this story. Maybe there's some signs in your life right now that point to the fact that maybe you're a little bit too comfortable like a Pharisee and need to be broken, or maybe you need to look to Jesus to be your comfort today. So let's start with signs that you may need Jesus to break you today. Here's the first one. You elevate yourself and you have little regard for others. You elevate yourself Look at the scribes and the Pharisees. In verse 3, it says that they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placed her in the midst, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were cunning. They were vile men. They were so full of themselves that they're of their status, that they, that they opposed Jesus because Jesus posed a threat to their authority. So what did they do? They tried to trap Jesus. They tried to trap Jesus with the test, and that test comes from um, something that they heard Jesus say earlier in his ministry, and we have that recorded in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, when, it, when Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." And so this is their trap. If Jesus is so high on the law, if Jesus is such a proponent of the law, then we're going to look at something in the law and bring it to him and see what he's going to do about it. What about what the law says about someone who was caught in the act of adultery? In the law, it says that they are supposed to be killed. So let's bring her to him and then let's see what he says. If he says stone her, then he's a liar and a blasphemer because he can't be of God because he is going, if he says not to stone her rather, he's going against the law. But if he does say to stone her, he's placing himself in the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite and then they can get him in trouble with the Romans because the Romans were the ones who controlled life and death and if anybody was supposed to be executed. So to them, This was a foolproof trap to get Jesus. And notice, they had zero, zero regard for this woman's life. They were so infatuated by their own status and their religious authority that this woman was just a throwaway for the sake of what they wanted to do. They didn't care who they steamrolled in the process of trying to get rid of Jesus. And also, in order for this trap to work, and according to the law, this was an offense that had to be witnessed by no less than two people. And in fact, when it says that this woman was caught in the act of adultery, it means that there would have had to have been witnesses. How do you think that worked? I would have to believe if I was someone having my early morning Bible study with Jesus sitting there and this whole thing starts unfolding before me that I would probably think, okay, they brought her before us and they said this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I would probably be like, ew, how did you do that? Why did you do that? In fact, some scholars believe that this is the reason why um, they think that the scribes and Pharisees may have even baited this woman to commit adultery And they themselves were the witnesses waiting for the moment to seize her and use her as a trap to get Jesus. It was all part of their their vile plan. And how do we know that? Well, because the old saying goes, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? Where's the dude? Who's missing from the story? Where's the guy? You really have to be some kind of full of yourself and your status to actually bait and catch someone like the Pharisees and the scribes did here. They elevated themselves. Do you elevate yourselves? 
Have you ever elevated yourself and have little regard for people? I know some of us like to think, oh, we would never do that. I would never act that way. I would never be like a scribe or a Pharisee elevating myself and having little regard for other people. But the problem is we're guilty of this all the time, aren't we? I would just like to take a moment to acknowledge the people in the room who work in food service. You get the brunt of this most of the time, don't you? Anytime we walk into a restaurant, we walk in as if we're the kings and queens of that restaurant, and we sit down, and if our order is messed up in one little way, boy, do we let someone have it. And we're not paying for that. Are you kidding me? Or what about uh, how we drive? That highway was paved for me. Everyone else is in my way. Right? I sometimes feel that. Uh, Maybe it's the thrones that we build for ourselves based on the bottom lines of our portfolios that allow us to look at other people and say, you know what, that person really isn't worth my time. We are deceived if we think that we aren't like the Pharisees when in fact we need Jesus to break us just like they needed Jesus to break them. Here's a second sign that you may need Jesus to break you today. Your comparison of yourself to others is a problem. Notice how they refer to this woman in their exercise of knowledge of the law of Jesus. They, call, they say, what are you going to do, what they do about such women? They say, such women, this comparison. Maybe you get caught in the comparison game more than you should. Maybe you think every now and again, you know, I've got my own things, but man, I'm not as screwed up as those people or that person. You really don't need to be around someone long before it becomes apparent that they're constantly just overrun in their thoughts about how they compare themselves to other people. It's this envy sometimes or covetousness or just flat out gossip and judging of other people, comparing people to other people, comparing yourself to other people. And that obviously runs rampant in society, but it runs rampant in the church too. I mean, there's many of us in the room that look around and often say, man, look at what they are wearing. I would never wear that to church. Are you kidding me? Man, did they put on a little bit of weight, didn't they? You know, I bet those aren't even real Jordans. You know, like we, we do this all the time. Our, our hearts are so drawn to wickedness that we often try to compare ourselves to other people all the time to make us feel better about ourselves because deep down inside, we think that we have to do things to make ourselves look good before God. And thus, that's how we feel satisfied. If that's you, you need Jesus to break you of that today. Here's a third reason, third sign that you may need Jesus to break you. You're known more for what you're against than what you're for. Have you, ever, have you ever met someone like this? They're known more for what they're against than what they're for. The Pharisees in verse 6, it said, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. All throughout the Gospels, you see the, the dynamic of the Pharisees and scribes being known for their opposition to Jesus. Oftentimes, this tends to be the demeanor of someone who's elevated their own desires and their comfort so high that if there's a threat to that, they dismiss it right away. That's not for me. It's not in my world. I oppose that. I cancel that. These are the highly critical spirited people who always have something to say about how messed up certain people are or what's wrong with literally anything. These people tend to be gossips. They perpetuate information that may or may not be true, but it doesn't matter to them. They just, it's true to them, and they're against it. These people are known for believing the worst about a situation or a person, not giving the benefit of a doubt. Coincidentally, these people are never wrong. Well, at least you can't tell them that they're wrong. You can't convince them that they're wrong. 
You know, I make first-time visitor calls as a campus pastor um, to the people who we see uh, filled out a Connect card for the first time. So we like to call them, just welcome them, say, hey, you know, I saw that you visited our church. We'd love to hear how your experience went and just welcome you. We'd love to, if you, any other information you want about the church, we'd love to help you with that. And there, oftentimes that's met with like, oh, wow, was not expecting someone to call me. This is great. You had a great experience. Other times, and I've had this, and I know Pastor Craig has had this too, we'll call and they're like, oh, interesting that you called. Let me tell you why I'm never going to come back to your church. Let me tell you all the, like, just all of the reasons why everything about our church is wrong. I'm like, you know, I just called you to welcome you to our church, and you took that opportunity just to, just to blast our church. Really? These people may even have biblical convictions and be believers, but their expression of their Christian faith is only for how screwed up everyone else is or how screwed up the world is, blasting anything and everything that's evil in the world, getting in Facebook arguments all the time about it, right? Very high on God's wrath. They love God's wrath. Man, Jesus is going to come back and he is going to clean house. Very low on God's grace. No sense trying to reach the lost. They're so lost. Of course, these people might believe the gospel, but it's often weaponized and used as the reason why they oppose whatever it is that they oppose. If that's you, maybe you need Jesus to break you today. Maybe you need to ask the question, if someone were to ask um, me about, or maybe if I were to ask someone, be honest with me, how would you describe me to someone else? If they're like, you know what, you're a really good guy, just don't talk about this thing, you know. That's, that, that person is really not a fan of this. If they start with that as opposed to that person really loves Jesus, that person is really on fire for the gospel, maybe we need Jesus to break us of that today. Are we known more for what we're against than what we're for? But then let's look at the other character in this story, the woman. You want to see... Uh, Jesus respond to someone in a way that we need to be responded to often. He met her where she's at and is a comfort to her in the midst of her folly. And maybe you find yourself in her shoes today. Here's three signs that you may need to find comfort in Jesus. The first one, you've been caught and you know you're guilty. You don't need to be told that you're a sinner. You know it all too well and you, you're broken. Maybe you don't even know what to do right now. Maybe you don't know how to handle what is going on in your life right now. Somehow you were able to drag yourself into church this morning, uh, but you feel so guilty and broken inside. Please stay with me because in the next little bit, there's an immense hope for you in this passage Here's a second sign. Maybe you're facing severe judgment from other people right now in your life. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your workplace. You know, I've had conversations with people who are just in tears about how awful they have been treated because of their faith or because of, uh, of what they believe, and they feel like they're just getting pummeled with no reprieve just day after day after day, having to defend themselves or having to prove themselves, or they're just tired if that's you, please see the character of Jesus on display right now in this passage. And here's a third sign. Maybe you've given up on changing. It's just too hard. You know there's something in your life that you need to change. You know that the status quo of your life isn't working right now. Something needs to change. You just don't know where to start. You're exhausted thinking about it again. You've tried everything. You've tried to do all of the things. And every time you grit your teeth and try to tough it out and you're running from that sin and you're running away as fast as you can, you turn around and it seems like it's just as close as it was before. And so you've given up. You've lost the strength to keep going. 
you know, it's interesting. We're going into a new year, right? So 2024, how many of you have your resolutions on losing weight or getting healthy or whatever like I do, right? I have that same resolution every year. In fact, I stand here before you today. In the last 10 years, I have lost 100 pounds. It's the same 10 pounds that I've gained and lost over the last 10 years, right? Why is it that our resolutions don't often come to fruition? Now, some of them do, but often they don't. Why? It's because in all of these resolutions, it's based on the fact that we have to grit it out with our own strength, with our own power to bring these resolutions to fruition. It's based on your own ability, your own willpower to get yourself to do what you know you need to do. But when it comes to true life change, in other words, when it comes to repentance and the actual turning away from your sin, you don't have the power to do this on your own. It doesn't work when we try to take our sin to the law. In other words, when we look at what the law says, it says you should do this or you shouldn't do this, and we take our lives and we put it in comparison to the law, and we're like, man, I screwed up there. I need to do better there. I need to try to work hard here to live up to the law because I'm trying to impress God. I'm trying to live up to his standard so that he will accept me. That's not the gospel, family. We don't, we don't change to earn God's love. We change because God loved. And that's why he came to us. It's to display his love, to save us by his love, to empower us, to honor him. Change doesn't start by bringing our sin to the law. The law actually brings our sin to us. And we need to then start by bringing that sin to the cross. That's why Jesus came for us. It's our second point This morning, Jesus came to save because we were already condemned. Let's pick back up in the story. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Just put yourself in the story for a second. Imagine what's happening. You're there having your Bible study with Jesus. All of a sudden, the Pharisees drag this poor woman into the midst of them. What, was she, what did she look like in that moment? She was just caught in adultery. She probably didn't have a lot of clothes on. This would have been very embarrassing. And, and all of a sudden, the Pharisees are berating Jesus. What are you doing? What are you going to do about this, Jesus? We're, the law says you need to do this, Jesus. What are you going to do? What say you, Jesus? What say you? And what does Jesus do? He gets down on her level. And he starts writing in the sand. What is he doing? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I, if I were the Pharisees, Jesus, what are you going to do? Stop playing in the sand. And so Jesus gets up and he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he goes back to playing in the sand. You know what I think Jesus was doing? I think he was showing the Pharisees that you thought you were trying to trap. This is child's play. Are you kidding me? He stopped them with one sentence because what did they do after he heard them say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? They started walking away one by one, starting with the older Maybe he was writing the name of the guy who they used to bait this woman in the sand. Maybe he was writing the name of the Pharisees as well with all of the sin that they've committed in the sand just to add uh, coals on top of their heads for what they just tried to do. But no, they were convinced that they were no different in sin than that woman was before them because Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And so one by one, 
the people left, starting with the older. There's a maturity statement there. Like, you know what? The older you are, the more screwed up you realize you are, right? For being as controversial as this passage is, do you know what's interesting? This passage is used by secular society to say, hey, we know what the Bible says. We know what the, how the Bible says how to live, and we should look at that. The same world that likes to try to disprove the Bible in every race, shape, and form actually likes to use this passage but misuse its meaning. The world likes to look at Jesus' example in here and say, see, Jesus doesn't condemn, so we're not meant to condemn. We're supposed to love everyone and not be mean and not tell anybody that they're living in sin. We need to love people, not condemn people, just like Jesus. We shouldn't focus so much on sin. We should focus more on love and not condemning people. The world likes to think that there's two different gods of the Bible. Did you know that? There's the, the angry, grumpy, old you know, God of the Old Testament who sits up on a throne looking down with a scowl on his face. And somehow between the Old and New Testament, he transforms into this hipster, like cool God who wears cool shoes and like tells people, hey, we, you know, we need to accept everyone and love everyone. But that's just not true. The truth is, God is the God of the Bible who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changing. And yes, Jesus didn't come to condemn because we were already condemned. That's our status from the day we were born into sin. It's almost as if it's like, hey, congratulations, you have a beautiful new baby boy, and he's condemned, right? That's why Jesus came, because he came to fix our mess. He came to fix our condemnation. We, he doesn't need to say that we're condemned because he knows we already are. That's why he's there. The world thinking that we can't condemn because Jesus get, didn't condemn is under the basis that somehow inherently we are good. We're not. We are sinful to the core. And to say that we are supposed to love like Jesus loved and be accepting of everything and not confront anybody on their sin and not try to help people out of their sin, that's not the gospel. The gospel and the reason why Jesus came has to start with the reality that we are condemned. Romans 3 it says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, uh, who took our place is what that means, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And of course, Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, the only thing that we deserve in this life is death and wrath, and yet Jesus gives us the opposite. Our message to you and our message to the world ought to be the same. We are all condemned. It all starts there. We are all sinners. We need a Savior. The law points directly to this. We cannot save ourselves, but Jesus did exactly that. That is the reason why he came. He knew we were condemned, and he chose to take our condemnation on him, dying the death that we deserve. That is grace, friends, and he gives us forgiveness, and he gives us life as a gift on top of that. Isn't he awesome? There's so a third thing this morning, Jesus' grace. All of that to be said, Jesus' grace then comes with a challenge. So slowly, one by one, the people leave, realizing that their plan was foiled to trap Jesus, and we're left here with Jesus and the woman. He says, where are they? 
Has no one, is no one left to condemn you? And what's interesting is she answers, no one, Lord, not realizing that the very person that she's staring at right now, looking at who is talking to her, asking her the question, is the only one that could rightfully, truly condemn her. And he chooses not to. But notice what comes next. He says, neither do I condemn you. But look at this. He says, go now and sin no more. Jesus' grace includes a challenge. He says, stop it with the foolishness. It's like he was saying, yes, I don't condemn you, but you are sinning. Stop it. Jesus doesn't overlook our sin. He removes it, but that came at a cost. And the logic doesn't make sense if we look at Jesus' death on the cross because of our sin and continue in it. Romans 6 also says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Who have we who have died to sin to still live in it? We look at the cross and we say, wow. He took that for me. I want to live for him. He died for that. I no longer have to live for that. When we do this, when we recognize what Jesus did for us, it allows us to drop the rock in our lives, to drop the things in the, the areas that we feel like we have to have control on. It, we, we truly surrender and we drop the rock. That's our big idea this morning. Drop the rock. Some of us go about life holding these heavy rocks in our lives. Rocks are so easy to pick up, aren't they? unforgiveness, some of these rocks, the burden of unforgiveness because of that person that hurt you so bad so long ago, I'm never going to forgive them. I'm never going to forget what they did to me. Maybe it's the burden of self-righteousness and this constant pressure to be perfect around everyone, making sure that they know that you're better or more successful. Maybe this rock is this burden of hatred that's sunk so deep into your heart towards someone or something that you don't remember the last time that you weren't angry. Maybe your rock is self-hatred of not meeting the expectations that you've put on yourself or maybe not meeting the expectations that you feel other people have put on you. And so you just go deeper and deeper and deeper into despair and depression. Maybe your rock that you hold on to and that you've decided to pick up in your life is fear. And that fear has led to anxiousness and it's led to anxiety and that anxiety has led to panic and that drives you deeper and deeper into despair. Maybe you're in the room and you're in the same position as the Pharisees holding the rock, trying to trap Jesus. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you don't know who this Jesus is and you're like, you know what, I got into church today. I, just, I wanted to see who this Jesus was and see if he is everything that people say he is. You know, it's interesting. Just the other day, my wife was checking out at the store and the, the guy at the cash register, um, just out of the blue, first thing he said to her is like, you know what, I wonder if anybody really believes in Jesus Christ anymore. Like, what a way to start, hey, did you find everything okay? Nope, it was, <laughs> what? I wonder if anybody believes in Jesus Christ anymore. It took my wife uh, back a little bit. She was like, well, I know I certainly do, and had a little conversation with him, and later found out, um, or later invited him to come to our Christmas Eve service, and we don't know if he showed up, um, but we were praying that he would. But what causes someone to think that? What causes someone to question that? There's obviously something happening in his life or something that happened in his life to make him question and make him test the idea of who Jesus Christ is. Is that you today? Are you testing the idea of who Jesus is? Whatever the case may be, these burdens that we hold on to, we sometimes try to throw at other people. Sometimes we weaponize these rocks against other and we sin against other people. Or sometimes you have been... Uh, hurt by someone else's sin in your life. But the truth is, because of what Jesus did on the cross, all of these rocks that we hold on to and that we quickly pick up and throw, ultimately they've all been thrown at Jesus and killed him. 
That's the interesting thing about the gospel and that Jesus died once and for all, absolving all of the sin in our lives, past, present, and future. But it doesn't give us license to keep sinning. What it does, it gives us motivation and inspiration and the freedom to drop the rock, to say, I'm not going to go on any longer in my life with this burden in my life that I've held on to, that I hold with such a tight grip, because we've somehow found comfort in that rock that we hold on to know. That rock was thrown at your Savior and killed him, and he willingly died for you so that you can have the freedom to drop that rock. Maybe going into 2024, you need to drop the rock of 2023 and everything that happened. You're not helping yourself in any way holding on to that unforgiveness in your heart that you've held on for so long, especially when you know that Jesus died for it. So at the, as we close the service, if you believe that Jesus died for you because of whatever that rock is that you're holding, it, it means that he gives you the permission to drop it, to leave it at the foot of the cross. And I just want to give you this opportunity today as we go into the new year. Maybe you need to do some work with the Lord. Maybe you need to bring that rock, bring that burden before the foot of the cross, bring that burden to the altar this morning. If that's you right now, and you need to hear the words from Jesus that says, neither do I condemn you because I was condemned for you. I took that condemnation for you. Now go on and sin no more. Don't live in darkness anymore. Go on and live in the freedom of my forgiveness right now because I die for you, because I love you. If that's you right now and you know that you are holding on to a burden, I would invite you to come forward and come to the altar. During this next song, we're going to have the worship team sing over you. So uh, I would ask you, remain seated. But if you need to do some work with the Lord, come forward. Come to the altar. Put a stake in the ground and say, you know what? 2023 is done. That thing in my life is done. I'm moving on from that and the power and the freedom that Christ gives me of his forgiveness and life that he has given me and I'm gonna move forward and allow this morning to be a stake in the ground in your life to say that was when I left it at the foot of the cross and pressed on toward the upward call in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're gonna provide this moment for you. I'm gonna pray and then the worship team is gonna sing over you. And, but if you need to do some work with the Lord, take this moment and do that, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and the love that you've shown us in taking on the rocks and the sin in our lives, Lord, that we hold on to so closely and have found comfort in. God, you've, you've dissolved that for us. God, we pray that you would even now press us to leave those at the foot of the cross, recognizing your death over them, knowing that you rose again from the dead, defeating our sin and death, allowing us to live in forgiveness and life. God, you are a great and gracious God. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.